Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, one of the contributors to Asset Allocator. Joining me today are Nathan Sweeney, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Multi-Asset at Marlborough, and my fellow Asset Allocator writer, David Baxter. Good afternoon to you both. Hi, Dean David. It's nice to be here. Okay. Um, Nathan, for the first time since 2017, uh, the UK equity market outperformed the US over a discrete 12-month period uh, coming to the end of January. But many clients are worried about supply chain issues, about inflation more broadly. Is there a danger that inflation and the big picture derails the UK's equity market revival? Yeah, so I think if we think about what's happening in markets, it's definitely a good reminder of how quickly things can change. And it really highlights one of the benefits of investing in multi-asset, particularly active multi-asset, because you get that diversification and the ability to change your portfolio. But if we look specifically at you know the returns of, say, the UK versus the US, the UK was actually up in January just over a percent. And on the flip side of that, we have the US, which was down 5%. So five spot, one, seven percent for January. So you've seen a big turnaround in the differentials in performance. What's driving that? It's a big style rotation. And this is linked to interest rates, as we all know. So from our perspective, we're actually overweight UK equity. So why do we like the UK? So what's so good about the UK and particularly now? So if we look at UK shares, they're definitely cheap on a relative basis compared to lots of other developed markets. An additional factor is within the UK, you get a lot of dividends. So you get companies which have attractive dividends. And if we're in a year where we think we're going to get some volatility, actually, is dividends not a good thing? Because, you know, essentially it can help to boost your returns throughout the year. So we like that aspect. Additionally, you have M&A activity. So we saw a flurry of M&A activity last, last year in the UK. And that just highlights that companies see value in the UK market, NVIDIA buying ARM, etc. So it kind of really highlights that, you know, the UK market is attractive and investors are seeing that. Um, and I think one important aspect is the UK market has lots of cyclical exposure. So we're talking about this kind of style rotation between, say, growth and value. And if you look at the UK market, it's very much in that value camp. It's got lots of companies that are exposed to a recovery in markets, which we should get once you get that reopening. So you can think about oil companies, gas companies, mining companies. So lots uh, of those companies present in the UK, financials as well. But the one thing I suppose we all need to be aware of is Central banks and central banks raising interest rates. Bank of England has been quite quiet. Um, and, you know, there's probably the expectation that they continue to raise rates. And that's the one thing that has the potential to derail the UK and its performance, you know, this year. Thank you, Nathan. Um, David Baxter, uh, what are you seeing in, in relation to the UK at, at the moment? Do you think sentiment has has moved in line with uh, with some of the factors that, that Nathan's described? Yeah, it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Because we uh, obviously we've seen the UK perform, uh, finally have that kind of excellent run of performance that people have predicted for the last several years, with it being overshadowed by, by Brexit. 
Um, and now it's almost kind of Groundhog Day because we're again, you're getting those calls of people saying it's kind of very undervalued and underowned, and therefore we have even more space for a resurgence and um, the kind of whole you know, idea of further kind of cyclical gains to be made. Um, so it does it does look interesting. Um, although I was I was interested, Nathan, asking you, um, you're talking about kind of the the style debate. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you find yourself main playing that via the markets you choose, or do you still feel that you need to balance across styles within markets? Because of course, you know, say in the UK, for example, you still get some quality focused funds, and mm-hmm. there are there are some big differences there. Yeah, so I think that that is an important question. And if you do look at different regions, you can see the stylistic bias within those regions. The US is a classic example. Um, so you've obviously got a very high exposure to tech. So the exposure to tech is about 25%. But when you include some of the other big names, Google, Facebook, etc., you get up to almost 40%. So you, you get that bias by just getting exposure to the US. You're going to have a growth bias, irrespective of how you allocate around that. And then with the UK, if you just took a core exposure again, you're going to have a value bias. So I think as an allocator, it's important to remember that. You know which markets have those inherent biases because they will tend to perform differently at different times. But I think you are right. Diversification is also important. Uh, when you're allocating to a specific region, uh, because you know you can get those style rotations, and even if you look at the US, where you do have a large exposure to growth, um, value has performed extremely well under the bonnet. It's a much smaller component to the benchmark, but you still get that strong performance. Um, but I think what you have to do from a portfolio construction perspective is look at each region. Uh, uniquely and decide how you want to allocate and you link that back to your kind of headline asset allocation view. Thank you for that, Nathan. Uh, The new year uh, often starts with optimism as people decide they'll finally do those New Year's resolutions, but nobody told the stock market because we have started with sell-offs across equities uh, broadly. Obviously, those growth names seem to have been Uh, affected to a greater extent but the sell-off has been extensive as an asset allocator how do you how do you think about periods such as the january we have just had yes i think it's it's a great reminder about volatility generally and you know the fact that volatility can feel unsettling but it's it's entirely normal um so if we think about our team our team has you know an average experience or combined experience of 150 years in managing multi-asset portfolios, but it just means that we've witnessed lots of different market conditions. And that includes periods of volatility. And you know, it just enables us to look at markets from that historic context. Um, so you're right, you know, we've seen these kind of very sharp falls. And the, the key lessons we would kind of highlight that we already know is kind of stay invested, stay diversified. Why would I say that? The reason I say that is because the biggest down days in markets are often followed by the biggest updates. So we all know that tech has sold off heavily at the beginning of the year. But if you look at the last few days of January, you've seen a strong resurgence in some of those growth names. Just to give you an example, if you look at the last day of January, the NASDAQ was actually up 3 spot 4% in one day. So you had the FAMG stocks, so F-A-A-M-G, 
Facebook was up 3.8, Amazon was up 3.89, Apple was up 2.6, Microsoft was up 0.88, Alphabet or Google was up 1.81. So it kind of really emphasizes that point, that timing the market, it is difficult, it's, it's extremely difficult. But when you're concerned about markets or reading in the press about, you know, that markets are selling off, that's the time not to react to markets and to stay invested because they can change on a dime and you can get those kind of big up swings. Uh, but I think, you know, beyond those kind of simple rules that we have in place, it's important to try and decipher for ourselves, um, you know, is this a correction within a bull market, which we believe it is, or is it something we think we need to be more concerned about? And there's a couple of ways to look at that. Um, I think if you look at the bond market, it's generally a great indicator of risk in markets. And you know we haven't seen any really warning signs coming from the bond market. So the bond market is telling you, we're actually not worried about what's happening at the moment. We just think it's a style rotation. Uh, you know, so if you think about high yields specifically, high yields would normally sell off in advance of the equity market sell off. That hasn't happened. Uh, the other indicator, which is a good one, is gold. And, you know, gold has been extremely stable throughout this. It's actually sold off here today. Uh, so we haven't seen that spike. So from as a fair trade, uh, gold really hasn't worked either. So um, it just highlights um, the fact that maybe this is not, you know, something which investors need to be concerned about. And actually, there was a fascinating chart, which we were circulating in our team chat room the other day. And I was talking about drawdowns in the S&P 500. So if you look at the S&P 500 turns, returns going back to the 1980s, the biggest or the average drawdown in the S&P over that period in any given year is 14%. So in any given year, the, the market is down 14% at some point. Um, and actually, it ends up positive in many of those kind of instances, uh, you know, just to highlight that, if you think about when the virus hit, the market fell 34%. So it was down, the biggest drawdown was 34% for that year. And yet it ended up 16% at the end of the year. So sometimes it's worth kind of just looking through the volatility. Mm. Um, on, a, on a related note, um, in uh, the, the closing week of January, I um I spoke to the, the manager of um, Rathbone Global Ops, which I suppose has been, like some of those other sort of quality growth funds, has been in the eye of the storm. Um, and when it came to the subject of, you know, kind of buying the dip, um, the manager said that he, he'd been a bit selective, but he, he was actually waiting to see perhaps a clearer path on the interest rate rise front in the US. Um, have Nathan, have you had any sense from the kind of fund managers you speak to of, of whether people are kind of, you know, have been jumping in with both hands or are they being a bit more kind of wait and see so far? Yeah, so I think, you know, each manager is going to approach it differently um, and it'll depend on their style and, you know, how they view volatility in markets. So if it was a growth fund and, you know, they have a long term uh, time frame in terms of holding periods, they would tend not to react, uh, continue to hold their stocks. But what they would do uh, is they would use this as a massive buying opportunity because when you get companies like NVIDIA and their share price is off 25%, and you know this is a company which is growing exceptionally fast and is going to be a world leader in its field, you know, they will see that as an incredible opportunity to add to that stock. So I think people will look at it differently. I think an important distinction as well is within the growth sphere, you have 
companies are extremely profitable. You know, the, the, the big companies at the top and they've got so much cash. You know, you saw Apple come out with their earnings and, you know, so their revenue was up 11% and, you know, their profits were uh, extremely high. So I think the revenue was $123.9 billion for three months. They've got $200 billion of cash in their balance sheet. I don't think that interest rates is going to impact their profitability you know, because they have so much cash. So a lot of these big companies, they have cash, so it's not an issue. And I think we saw a reminder of that when Apple came out with their earnings, and then you saw these companies with strong balance sheets rally. The key concern is for companies who are growing but are not profitable, because ultimately when you get rate rises coming through, it impacts their financing. So the question then is, you know, will that company get to the point where we believe it'll generate all of these profits in the future? Or will the fact that they have to spend more money on getting there impact that growth? And that's why you're seeing lots of companies selling off. Peloton would be a good example of that. Thank you for that, Nathan. And now, almost as if we'd planned it, we move on to the interest rates question. Um, they do seem to be driving market sentiment at present, as as David uh, Baxter alluded to. But Nathan, is there a danger of policy error that rates could be raised uh, either too high or too swiftly? Uh, you know, we can look at things like output gaps. We can look at things like or star, which indicate that tighter monetary policy is justified in the current environment. But we also have an environment that is that dreaded word unprecedented in the in terms of the pace of the uh, recovery how how big a factor is it in your mind that rates could rise uh, too quickly that monetary policy could tighten and actually those recovery those cyclical those value stocks that have that have as you mentioned earlier been very fashionable actually uh, end up uh, the wrong side of a recession Yes, I think that you're right. You know, this is definitely one of the biggest risks to market stability this year. The fact that, you know, central banks raise interest rates too quickly to combat inflation. And basically that just hinders growth to the point where you could potentially get a recession. On the other side of this, you have central banks like the ECB who are not looking to raise rates at the same pace. So that raises the question about maybe inflation running higher for longer, which is an additional risk. So if you know we think about central banks and their view on inflation, it's really changed quite quickly, particularly the Fed. One way of kind of looking at this, if you look at the last day of 2021, uh, you have the futures market, which can price things like interest rates. Uh, so at the end of 2021, the futures market was pricing the odds of three rate hikes in 2022, and they had those odds at 30%. And that was three 25 basis point rate hikes. If we look at those odds now, we're seeing that the odds are for five interest rate increases, and that's at 34%. And we've actually got the odds of six or seven increases at 31%. So I think that alone is something which markets should focus on and you know have their attention on because it has the potential to impact different parts of the market. But I think the big question should be, have these expectations overshot reality? So if you think about it, the market generally is good at looking six months out. Anything beyond that is extremely unknown. And if we look at the odds of these rate rises, that's pricing these out over you know, the course of this year. 
So we might not actually get the rate rises which the market is expecting today. Um, you know, why could that happen? Um, essentially, you've got a number of factors which could change that. Inflation is the big one. So if inflation expectations don't materialize in the way that people expect, then essentially the view on rate rises will change quite quickly and you will get certain markets of certain pockets of the market performing, which have sold off dramatically, because that means that their financing changes their ability to finance. So I think that's something that would definitely be watching quite closely, inflation. And if you think about the key drivers for inflation, it's been something like the energy price has been a big feed through uh, within inflation uh, over the course of last year. And inflation works off something called the base effect. So it just means that the prices have to continually rise to keep pushing inflation up. So if you look at US inflation last year, it averaged 7% over the year. For us to get an additional 7%, we need everything to go up by the same amount. If, if that's you know, sounds logical, then it would mean that the oil price, which was at, you know, kind of around $80, $85 towards the end of the year, would need to double to have the same level of impact on inflation this year. So you're talking about oil at 170. It's currently around 90. Is it going to 170? I don't know. It doesn't really look like that at this point in time. So it just means that it will be harder for inflation to go higher from here. But on the other side of that, I do acknowledge that you've had a period where people have been constrained for two whole years. Uh, you know, so that will have, I think, a dramatic impact on the way that people spend as we come out of lockdown, which again can feed through to inflation. So the key takeaway here is it's all data dependent. So we just have to keep focusing on the data to figure out which direction we're going in. Thank you for that, Nathan. Um, David uh, Baxter, um, is this something that you're um, I suppose everyone's thinking about um, inflation and interest rates and how it impacts their own lives. Um, is this something you're noticing from the conversations that you're you're having in the market? Yeah, I think it's um, perhaps the... To me, I, I suppose recent months and this year perhaps feel more macro-oriented than some previous years because there is so much focus on what the, um, what the central banks are saying and doing and, um, of course, the whole inflation debates and the sort of perhaps falling back of the argument that it was transitory that was quite dominant um, last year. Um, I mean, w- one thing I, I do wonder, and I don't know whether Nathan has any thoughts on this, is if things are a bit more kind of fluid, does that does that force you to be a bit more kind of tactical in how you're moving your portfolio around? Or do you simply just have more of a hold a bit of everything strategy? I mean, how does that work out? Yeah, so I think you know being tactical definitely makes sense. Um, you know, so you have to look at where those opportunities are in terms of how you're allocating, and you need to look at that frequently. So in episodes like this, what we tend to do is we look at our tactical asset allocation positioning every month, and we sit down as a team and we decide how we want to be positioned. Uh, what we do is we'll do that independently of each other because I don't want my views to sway other members in the team. If I think we should be overweight in the US, I don't want them all to follow that view. I want them to have their own view. And what that does is it stimulates debate, what we should talk about, how we should be positioned. Um, And that will then set the agenda for what we need to discuss. So if if everybody in the team is saying we should be underweight in the US and we're currently overweight, then we clearly need to discuss that at the meeting. And basically that's what happened at our last meeting. But the, the point is that 
that meeting happens on a monthly basis. But when we get episodes like this, we will convene that more frequently. We'd say, okay, we need to talk about our US exposure. The US is selling off. We're getting rate rises coming through. How do we feel about this now that that information has changed? And that information will be the Fed's pivot in terms of we need a lot more rate rises to tackle inflation than the three we were considering earlier and reducing our balance sheet quite slowly to it, it, it seems as if they're reacting uh, quite strongly to inflation. So as a result of that, it changes the way we would think about valuations for the US market. It changes the way uh, people are allocating to the US market. So you've seen flows slowing, you've seen valuations come off, uh, it'll impact the macro data if you can see interest rates tightening. So when we look at the sum of the parts, basically it now seems the US is an underweight and basically that's what we did in portfolios. So in January, uh, we reduced our exposure to the US, we went underweight and we actually went overweight Asia because we see a different dynamic in Asia. Thank you for that, Nathan. Um, and that takes us nicely onto Asia, as if we'd planned it. Um, the rise in Asia as an economic force uh, has been one of the more significant themes in, in markets and geopolitics uh, of the past decade. It seemed at one time that all a company had to have for a business strategy was sell more to China and the market promptly re-rated it. A lot of uncertainty has uh, has happened since then. Nathan, how can one think about exposure to Asia as an investor right now? How do you get that exposure? How do you achieve diversification? Yeah, so so you know, it's the Chinese year of the tiger. So the, the big question, I suppose, for investors is: Will Asian markets roar this year? We think they will. Um, there's several reasons why we think this will happen. I think, firstly and most importantly, the People's Bank of China is the only central bank looking to ease monetary policy. So that one of the major central banks, everybody else is talking about raising interest rates, shrinking their balance sheets, and we have the Chinese central bank doing the opposite. And we know that central bank activity has been a key driver of markets. So there's a big correlation between markets and what central banks are doing. So we think that's an extremely important factor. Um, Secondly, if we look at flows, and again, this is a good indicator the market is allocating to Asia again. So last year, you were seeing a lot of money coming out. There were concerns about regulations, so tightening regulations within Asia, particularly within the tech space. So tech sold off heavily, looking to clamp down on some of the tech companies and put some more sensible regulation in place. Um, So as a result of that, we think that brings an additional opportunity. So you're seeing central bank supportive, flows are positive, valuations look cheap because the market didn't participate last year to the same extent as the US. It was one of the only markets which was negative last year where everything else was positive. So again, that's why we think um, Asia is an attractive area to look at. And I think there are reasons to be concerned and there's reasons to be concerned about investing in any market. There's always you know, a kind of a positive and a negative. And the negative is obviously the the property side. So you've seen, obviously, property collapse, and there's lots of concerns about you know the financing within property, and maybe there was too much liquidity in property, and the government is trying to address that, but that's having an impact on not only property, but Chinese growth. And we saw that the IMF have downgraded Chinese growth, which is going to have an impact on global growth. But perversely, the worse the story is, the more the central bank will intervene, which is a positive. 
So we know that if you're seeing these kind of uh, regulations coming through and it starts to impact wider sentiment, you may get some let up in these regulations. And we expect that to happen this year uh, where the government will step back a bit from that, give you know the market a bit of breathing space, which will enable that recovery to come through. And for that reason, we think actually there's lots of reasons to be you know positive on Asia. You um, on on the points about China. I suppose it's interesting that some of the um, big uh, investment entities like BlackRock Investment Institute have started to kind of split out China from Asia and just view it as is it its own asset class, its own region. Have you reached that point yet, or do you still kind of bundle them together? Yeah, so it is it is bundled together. I think a lot of that is due to how people allocate the benchmarks, but it is a conversation we've actually had internally because you're right, you know, so it's the second largest economy in the world. Um, so it, in portfolios, it should have its rightful pra- place. Mm-hmm. So in portfolios, it should have its rightful place as, uh, you know, being allocated to as a single entity, so China. Um, so that's something we're looking at and i think in line with blackrock it's something we might actually incorporate into portfolios thank you for that nathan and thank you both for joining me and thanks to all of you for listening do remember to tune in to the next edition of the asset allocator podcast goodbye small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.